Welcome to Shooting the Frisbees with your hosts, Jake and Randy, discussing all things freestyle frisbee and whatever else that comes up. Welcome to Shooting the Frisbees with Jake and Randy. Hey, Randy, how's it going? Hey, Jake, I'm doing great today. I'm super excited about our episode. I know you are too. Yeah, I'm very excited about this episode in part because I got to participate in the event that we're talking about. So we're doing a recap of the World Urban Games. What's cool is that I'm the only one who's going to be in this episode that was outside of the bubble. And all the people we have on the episode today were deeply inside the bubble. So today we're going to have uh, Skippy Jammer, who was the WIFDIF freestyle chair. We also have on the episode today, Paul Kenny, the executive director of the FPA, Lori Daniels. Um, She is also on the FPA board and did the commentary live on site. Uh, We also have our own Jake G, who did the commentary uh, on the stream. And we also have the winners of the initial World Urban Games with us today. We have Daniel O'Neill and Emma Kale. So all of those folks are with us today. And we're going to start with Emma and Daniel. And Daniel, I'm going to start with you. So give us your initial thoughts about what this experience was like. Uh, Yeah, it was an amazing event. Uh, I was really happy to be a part of it and to be a part of it with Emma. It was unlike any freestyle tournament that I've been to before in that just it was highly organized, obviously a part of this multi-sport event. And really one of the best parts of it, the highlights for me, was watching the the athletes in the other sports. Um, I I was so inspired to see the breakdancers, the BMX riders, the roller skaters. Every sport was really interesting and we could learn from from all of them. I was just, uh, I thought everybody did a great job. We all took it really seriously and put a lot of time and effort into our routines and really how we were gonna show ourselves in our sport. Um, But with that being said, there was no you know, cut through competitive nature in a bad way. It was all, we were all friends. We were all in it together with the primary goal of just showcasing our sport in the best light possible. Wow, that's awesome. And that that certainly came across on the stream as well. So Emma, what, what were some of your initial feelings and thoughts regarding this? Yeah, but I would definitely agree with a lot of what Daniel said. You know, it's just so incredible to be part of this event um, at this level and to be surrounded by so many amazing athletes and get to talk with them and learn a little bit about what their worlds are like. Um, and then to get to just appreciate, you know, getting to see them go out and do their their things. Um, so that was just an amazing thing to be a part of. Also, you know, on the side of, I think, one of the great things that came out of this, as Daniel mentioned, was getting to showcase our sport to so many people, you know, have not heard of freestyle frisbee before, maybe don't think of frisbee beyond dogs. And so being able to both have so many people in the audience, but also being able to talk to people um, who were interested in learning what we got, what we do, um, and the fact that we had many opportunities for demonstrations um, throughout the days that we were there um, to, you know, encourage audience members to come out onto the playing field, try out frisbee, try out some tricks, um, really being able to make those, you know, one-on-one connections with people. Um, that for me was something really special that came out of this. And you mentioned the audience. So watching it online, I could see what looked like a really large audience. So what was that like performing in front of an audience that big? You know, I don't know if Freestyle has had an audience that big for quite some time. So what was that like for you guys? 
Um, I would say in my personal experience, I don't have a ton of awareness when I'm actually out uh, doing a routine in terms of what's necessarily around me. Um, I think, you know, right before the routine and right after the routine, I have a chance to appreciate, you know, wow, there's a lot of energy out here. Like, this is exciting. You know, people are are pumped up right now. Um, and, you know, they're seeing something that they're liking. Um, but in terms of, like, what is it actually like in the moment of, you know, doing the routine, I am... I'm pretty hyper focused and just, you know, communicating with Daniel, where are we going? What are we doing? Um, but it was pretty incredible to finish the routine and, you know, see all the people that were super psyched about what we just did. Wow. Well, that's interesting that you kind of were able to dial back the nerves and kind of be so focused. So Daniel, was that true for you? Were you nervy or were you anxious or just kind of in the moment or maybe a mix of all? Yeah, I guess kind of a mix of all. I think what was, what was interesting was that it seemed like there was just more people in the venue park as the weekend went on. Like it makes sense. Like, cause it started on a Friday. So the quarterfinals, the, the crowd was lighter. And then, you know, the semifinals, the finals, we had a huge crowd. And then probably the biggest crowd of all was for the battle format demonstration we did after our, our finals was over. So it just kept building, but I mean, people were really interested. They were engaged um, I think it was it, it, it fired us up as competitors and uh, just kind of raises the bar and forces everybody to actively think about what they're what they're putting out there, not just for the other players and the judges, but for for everyone else who's present kind of changes the way that you approach routine building. So one thing that I really liked about what you did, Daniel, is after the demos were done, you then got on the microphone and said, Anybody who wants to learn this sport, come meet me in the hall and I'm going to teach you how to learn this sport. It was just <laughs> like that embodied what a spread the jam opportunity this was for us. I think that we're going to see flying disc and especially freestyle blossom in Hungary just because of our presence there. It was really amazing. So thank you for doing that, Daniel. Yeah, that gives me goosebumps just hearing that. It was awesome. Yeah, and, I'm, and I did just that. I mean, like Emma was saying, like I made so many one-on-one -on -one connections where I spent 30 minutes or more with a kid or with a couple or with a father and daughter or, uh, you know, a lot of locals. And, and you know, we gave them out some plastic. We, we gave them some foundation. So really hope that... Um, that it does kind of spark growth of, of freestyle in Hungary specifically. And that two years from now, when it's back in Budapest, we could have a, a local team. So Skippy, uh, I would love to hear your experience as well and, and kind of maybe just give a little insight into how this all came about. And I know that's kind of hard in, in a small little nutshell, but yeah, kind of give us your thoughts. So um, nine years ago, uh, I was the executive director of WIPDIP at the time. And I had just come back from a, uh, what was at that time the largest ultimate international ultimate tournament in Prague, Czech Republic. And I was jacked. I was so jazzed and feeling so much energy from that event. And so I go to Seattle for Worlds, FPA Worlds, and I made a point of connecting with Lori, with Bethany, and I pulled Bill Wright in. And we found a little patch of grass right there at Green Lake. And we sat down and we hashed this out. We, we talked it through. We we discussed the uh, the positives, the um, the challenges, and we put our heads together and we 
made a determination that this is the direction that we want to go. It took us nine years to get there. So we had a nice moment at uh, the briefing before the competition where we had all the athletes and the staff together there in um, Budapest where the four of us stood up and and um, acknowledge that moment uh, and the, the foresight that that provided us with. Fast forward nine years later, then looking back on this, even though it's a fresh memory, this was the most intensive, most focused I can ever remember being in any of my programming that I've ever had. I think that the big, the big difference was that it wasn't our event. We were part of something else. Um, this was bigger than us. This was bigger than just freestyle. We were now part of something. And I think that that was where a lot of that energy came from and um, the, the challenges that it presented. And it, I think that that also is what gave us as a staff the energy to be able to pull this thing off, because this was, I'll use the term, a reach goal. Going into this, I was nervous because, again, this isn't just our event. We have we have the eyes of a lot of powerful people looking at us. We also have staff that are um, uh, extremely experienced. The staff that we were dealing with, it's the same people who do the X Games, the video uh, the video people, the broadcast people. They also do the, the Red Bull mountain biking stuff. So these guys are the top level pros. And now here we are in the same room and and we're and this is who we're working with. So I think that those are some of the some of the the challenges that we faced and and I was extremely proud about how we pulled it off. But I also want to speak to the athletes. Um that was another really growing into it. And I had I had to work very closely with Paul. And so a lot of kudos goes to him for um for his diligence. But the selection process and coming up with the names and and they were all flying blind. I mean, I like to hear from Daniel and Emma and some of the others uh, about what they thought they were getting into and what it ended up being, because that was two two separate things. The athletes themselves, I was extremely proud about uh, the quality of play, their commitment, their focus and uh, how unified they were. Yeah, that's so interesting to hear what you just said there, Steve, about what you were thinking you were getting into and what you actually did get into and what that experience was. And I bet you that's true for all of you. I mean, that probably just blew you guys out of the water about the delta between those two things. So, Paul, Skippy alluded to uh, the work that you put into this. So I just wanted to ask you to t- talk a little bit about what you put into this before the event and, uh, and uh, how you feel it turned out. Yeah, well, before the event, like it was about, I want to say three or four months, basically almost a full-time job. Like Skippy was talking about gathering all these different players from all over the world, different time zones, different languages. And that was a pretty interesting scramble to get, you know, to get that coordinated. In the meantime, there's also lots of documents that had to be written and all this coordination that had to be done in advance. Literally, I was waking up in the morning with 20, 30 messages from you know europe and then it kind of worked its way throughout the day to like lori in hawaii or something like that so these were like literally beyond full-time days and it it was just so intense and and like he said we were flying blind and then when the event happened then it uh, it just ended up being it worked out very well hey lori do you want to add something to that well i i don't doubt that both Skippy and Paul did an incredible amount of work. And I would say that if it wasn't for the both of them being so conscientious and actually attentive to all of those details, we would have gotten there and we would have been scrambling around and we would not have been able to focus 
on the competitive aspects, which is what we all got to focus on once we arrived to Budapest. But Skippy and Paul both sort of had their roles in building all of, like, kind of like Paul and Skippy just said, getting the documents, getting all of the information, getting our photographs for our badges, uh, getting, making sure each team had their music ready, uh, knowing exactly what the expectations were for all the athletes, uh, the logistics of getting from the airport to the hotel, and how do we get from, I mean, all those, inf- all those pieces of information came through those two guys. So Skippy, um, remarkable, remarkable work. I mean, like you said, it was logistically probably the most complex because we weren't part of it. This wasn't our own show. This was somebody else's show. And then Paul coordinating the teams uh, throughout the last six months, six or seven months at least, really trying to dial in exactly how many countries, how many athletes, how many teams per country. I mean, none of that was small. It all fell together because of both Skippy and Paul's attentiveness, but there was also so much else that happened through the FPA board's efforts, even through the whole uh, coordination with the World Flying Disc Federation. I mean, we were fielding emails from them about the demos we were going to do. I would say, just to answer before you even ask me the question of what it was like, did I expect and what uh, what it was like to be there, I would say it exceeded my expectations, and I heard that from athletes too. That in terms of what we didn't have to think about once we got there, our staff got to focus on the athletes and getting the show going and moving and making it user-friendly. So we got to focus on freestyle. That was an amazing gift because so much of our energy that would otherwise not be available because we're dealing with all the little logistical things, they were all done. So then we got to say, okay, let's get the athletes out there. Let's make sure they are uh, being interviewed afterwards and all of those little details that we sometimes don't have the energy to put in when it's a freestyle or flying disc only event we had because it was a world urban games event. Yeah. So um, uh, a reality check um, going into this, then we thought that this was going to be in Los Angeles. The Los Angeles organizing committee submitted a bid and was awarded this event I believe it was about six months ago. I'm not quite certain as to the exact date, but their bid was rescinded by um, Geisip, the the organizers of this event. Uh, They didn't think that it was up to what they needed to have happen. So they they scrambled um, and they had to go and look at what the other bids were. And that's when they awarded it to Budapest. So some of the challenges we faced was that Budapest had committed to this, and their turnaround time was, what, four months between saying, yes, we're live with this event, to the athletes showing up. The organizers did a fantastic job. We were all super appreciative of their efforts, their focus, their diligence, and their professionalism. They were outstanding. Yeah, it really seems like the city got behind this whole event. I mean, I think I read something somewhere that they were already profitable before this thing even launched. So they had sponsorship in place, and the city must have put up some money as well because this looked like it was incredibly well-funded. So one of the things also, it was kind of cool. We had this shuttle that came from the hotel where most of the athletes were staying and and then drove us about, say, 20 minutes to the to the World Urban Games site. And as you were in the in the shuttle, if you were paying attention, there were billboards that actually were along the road that marketed World Urban Games. And so in spite of the 
only four months warning that this was going to happen, they had quite a bit of publicity out, um, at least along the streets and stuff like that. And then they had banners up. I mean, when we first got there for our rehearsal day, we're still walking among bulldozers, right? Or, you know, people were sweeping and still building things and launching cameras, massive, amazingly expensive cameras <laughs> all over the site. And so so we were kind of dealing with a little bit of like the construction and thinking, I was thinking like, uh, are they going to have this done in 24 hours? But they did. They like created these plastic walkways to bring down the, the dirt and people were showing up and, uh, and all of the big video monitors, there were video monitors everywhere, everywhere. Like every site had, and they had slow motion replay. They were showing different sports all across the village so we could actually be jamming and the athletes could be warming up on the um the space the arena that we shared with three by three basketball and we could actually watch uh bmx freestyle or we could watch parkour a little bit um on a personal note i was telling jake about this i came into the sport as i think some of, of other people right after the rose bowl was over i never got to see the rose bowl my entire 30-something years of playing have always heard about the Rose Bowl, seen pictures and videos of the Rose Bowl. And my friends are all people who were there, right? And there was all this excitement and energy you can see from the Rose Bowl footage. But I didn't. I never had a first-person experience of that. So for me, being at the World Urban Games felt like being in a venue where there was a lot of people who were not players, who were actually audience members watching freestyle first time and really appreciating it and embracing it. And, and then... Um, um, and us getting a chance to get to know like the parkour people or the BMX people or the, the roller people uh, and the break dancers and parting with them and sharing a shuttle with them every day. For me, it was a full circle because I felt like I missed out. And for the first time in a long time, I feel like, wow, maybe this is now our future. This is an opportunity for us to actually build into this particular option for freestylers. Uh, everything else stays the same in the freestyle world. We're not removing anything, but we're adding this whole other dimension of high-level multi-sport event option where freestylers of the future can actually opt into should they be interested in doing that. Not everybody's going to be interested in doing that. Yeah, so what I'm curious about is hearing from the athlete side of things about what do you think we should uh, we should do to better present ourselves uh, for these type of events moving in? I know there's going to be opportunities that will present itself, whether it's uh, uh, World Beach Games or uh, Youth Olympic Games. Um, we're we're on the slate now. We've been seen. They know what we are. So uh, the question to you is, what do we need to do to improve? Yeah, I can take that, Skippy. At least start, and I'm uh, hopefully you have some good ideas too, but. Uh, I, I think the, that we showed ourselves really well this time around. I was very impressed at how the battle format that we did in the demonstrations resonated with the crowd. And I wonder if something like that, that just is like, it, it was really simple for them to understand. You only have to really hold your attention in one place for 10, 15 seconds at a time, which in the Instagram era, I think is like, kind of makes sense but like people really seem to like that format um so i'd be curious about it but also you know what i gathered from the the fact that the world urban games even was created i think it's 
GISIF's mission, the Olympic movement's mission to push focus towards sports that are youth inclusive, that, you know, have gender equality in practice, not just in concept. Um, and to try to, you know, expand these new sports to more countries and places around the world. So I think that that has got to be our focus. If there's one thing that we learned from the urban games is that, yeah, there is a lot of doors opening and opportunities for us to really push our, our sport forward in a way that, that we haven't been able to until now, but it's, it's going to require us to teach kids, like find a way to, to transfer the knowledge to young people and just, and, and get more women, more girls, more boys, more countries um, playing our sport. That's the, that's the number one goal. So Daniel, so did the organizers get to see this battle format and what was their feedback about it? I didn't get a chance to connect with the local organizing committee, you know, whether they saw that or whether the Olympic channel, like, had streamed that part of it, but it was it was pretty electric. We had a women's battle and a men's battle. It's kind of the way that breakdancing does it too. It's this one versus one battle. The way we did it was we had the audience kind of all applause, and it was just like whoever had the loudest uh, applause won the point. And like, for example, I think there was like a big Polish cheering section. So like she always got like the huge applause, like, which was awesome. But like what in breakdancing, they had like a couple well-renowned judges who had been around breakdancing for a long, long time. They brought in one, you know, kid from the audience who got his vote. So I think there's different possibilities to explore in terms of how it's judged. The idea of having, you know, one short move just show your shit it almost like it makes dropping okay in a in a in an interesting way i was just curious yeah because i think that's a very audience friendly accessible kind of event it's perfect for this kind of venue so emma maybe you can um answer skippy's question there and give you a chance to to share your insight yeah i guess i would definitely agree with a lot of what daniel said i mean i think you know, top priority is spreading the jam and just sharing our love of this sport with as many people as are interested across the entire world. You know, the both the spreading the jam and also reaching bigger audiences in our own competitions. I think those kind of go hand in hand because as you're reaching more and more people in various competitions, more people are exposed, you know, you're spreading the jam in that way. Um, and then also as you spread the jam, you get more players. Those players are now competing in those events. You know, these things are all, they're all working together. Um, so I think they're both very important. Um, and I guess I would just add too, after the event, um, I've also, it left me with a lot of thoughts about, you know, what is the best way to present a freestyle competition, you know, both from the side of a competitor, as well as the side of a spectator. And, you know, a lot of the things that Daniel mentioned, I've been thinking about, like, I also thought the battle format was really engaging. Um, and it was a, really great way to get audience participation, you know, whether the audience were voting by applause or having an audience member be a participant on the judging panel. There are lots of creative ways there. And also just being at this event where there are a lot of these different sports and they each have their own style 
through which they organize their competition. And I think it gives a lot of interesting ideas of how freestyle um, could be could be competed and shown in the world. So I just think it's worth keeping an open mind and being creative and, you know, just thinking what are the different ways we could do this and trying different things and seeing how things feel, again, both from the competitor side and from the spectator side. I think I think it's a, a wide open field and I think we should explore it. I want to answer Skippy's question a little bit from my perspective because I'm sort of a competitor still, although I'm also sort of a staff person still. I'm kind of in between. But one of the things that really struck me being at this event, being a part of this event, was how the entire competition was a show. Usually when I go to competition and I've got my team, I'm thinking about the show that we're putting on in our routine, but I'm not thinking about the entire competition being a show, uh, an audience-friendly spectator sport, really. Now my experience in live streaming has me kind of thinking that way, but usually what I do is I look at the event and I just figure out what's the best camera angle and how can I get the most exposure of what's going on in the field, but I haven't thought a ton about how do we change what we do to make it to make the entire thing into a, a show. And that's really what this, this opened my eyes to the possibility that our competition can be a show. It can be a spectator sport. You know, I've always kind of wondered, could we really be a spectator sport? And being at WUG and seeing the amount of people that came in to watch us live made me realize, yes, we are a spectator sport. People do like to watch this. We just have to figure out how to organize it in such a way that we can present it that way. So as a competitor and as a staff person, I think that's the tact that we have to take if we want to continue to be successful in this type of an arena. Yeah, I've always thought that too, Jake, about the packaging and, you know, making it so it is an event. And, you know, the way we currently run our events is just kind of like these four days and it's just, you know, ongoing. And we just never really had the infrastructure to be able to explore this. So that's what World Urban Games sounds like it gave us that chance to like have a little peek over the ledge and go, oh my, wow. So that's how it would look. Um, and speaking of the production value, I, I feel like we have to talk a little bit about the commentary. And, you know, Lori, I know you did the on-site commentary and Jake, you did the, the streaming commentary. And so I was on the outside. So I got to really see that window into the experience. And I'm, I'm curious, Jake, if you could talk a little bit about what, what was that like to do the commentary and, and having that experience be kind of ramped up to a professional level? Yeah, it's an interesting question because we've you and I have done commentary before at Worlds and I've done commentary at some other events just on my own. This experience was a little bit different. There was a lot more to it. So um, on the first day, Bethany and I were commentating together and we have this big list of questions that we got from everybody and we're trying to to talk about the players and we realized that this list is so much information and we have so little time to convey it that we really have to pare it down and figure out exactly what's important to talk about. And so by the last day, we had come up with this one pager per team that showed us the uh, most important bullet points that we wanted to touch on. And that really helped us focus on what we needed to talk about. And then the other thing that I, uh, I learned from this is just how they set up their commentary booth and the kind of equipment that they have to really make it successful. So when Bethany and I were talking, 
we couldn't hear anything else that was going on at the venue. So we couldn't hear Lori talking. We couldn't hear the music. Like you could hear it in the background, but not in our headphones. But we could hear each other very clearly. So we were just talking to each other and it really made it a lot simpler. Um, that was very eye-opening to me. It was also interesting how disconnected we felt because we were seated up above the field. And so we're looking down and we have this great perspective, but we really didn't get a sense of what was going on at the judging table, what was going out on in Lori's mind as she was talking out there. We felt a little bit detached. So that was also an interesting experience too. You guys were focused on the stream, right? You guys just had a monitor and were commentating on yes. what you were seeing on the stream. So you felt disconnected, but you were connected to all of the people that were out there watching. And it came across so professional. So I was actually in Rovereto watching the live stream with the Rovereto people, and they had a team that they were obviously rooting for. And and I had just never had that experience watching any freestyle thing in my life. It was like, oh my goodness, I'm watching a sporting event. It was like we were yelling at the team. It was like I was watching the Seahawks. It was crazy. It was just really awesome. So Lori, I can see you have some thoughts about that too. I just wanted Jake to add a little piece about the slow motion replay. Yeah, so Randy mentioned this and I forgot. We, we Bethany and I had a screen uh, so we could see exactly what the live stream audience was seeing. So we were seeing the broadcast. I'd always wanted to have slow motion replay, but it's just so much work to make it happen. And so these guys had five cameras. Some cameras were in really close. And then the routine would end and 15 to 30 seconds later, the slow motion replay would just start on our screen. And as soon as we saw it, we knew, okay, the audience is seeing the slow motion replay. So what are we going to do? We're going to talk about it, talk about what we see, and then talk about how that ties into the judges scores. And it was just really an amazing experience to see the level of professionalism and to be a part of something like that. So Lori, give us some of your uh, thoughts about being the on-site commentary as opposed to what Jake was experiencing with the live stream. Yeah, probably the opposite was going on down on the field area, um, on the floor, because Jake was telling me how he and Bethany were sort of detached to some degree because they were focused on the uh, the streaming aspect, whereas uh, I was very integrated. I mean, the role of the international MC was that I had a translator, an interpreter every single round, which was very helpful because I don't speak Hungarian. But also, I was in constant contact with Paul and Skippy and Bill, who were running the judging table and the athletes' uh, arrival to the field, as well as their departure. And so it was pretty much uh, time management and orchestrating all of that. So it it took a lot of energy, and uh, but I was really happy to do it. I had a great, great time doing it. I really had a lot of fun because... Um, because I actually felt very immersed in everything. I was immersed in the play on the field, um, especially during finals. We added this one element of interviewing the athletes as they were finished with their play, which actually helped fill the gap of time while the judges were still scoring. And so Paul and I had constant eye contact in terms of uh, he would tell me when the judges were absolutely finished, um, waiting for the scores to go up on the graphic on the screen uh, took a little bit longer than we had hoped, but we filled that time with the interviews. And the interviews actually ended up um, allowing the audience to connect with the team. Um, and so I, I felt like that that was a nice inclusion that we added um, to the finals. 
but it was it was really like a juggling act. It felt like I was uh, sort of the conductor of a symphony, but other people were telling me when to start the next part of the song. It took us about two rounds to really dial it in, but by finals, we nailed it. That's really cool. It just, again, kind of shines a light on all the layers that were going on and the infrastructure in place. So, Paul, I know that you're kind of playing traffic cop in a whole different kind of level, like Lori was being a traffic cop and then you were being traffic cop on kind of the technical judging. So give us an insight, like you're pointing to Bill saying, bring the team on or Skippy. And so give us your insight, Paul. Well, there was a choreography associated with, and you got to give props to Ryan because we used his system. Without that system, we could never have done this. But we had five minutes between teams. So we had three-minute rounds. We had about a minute and a half for the judges to get their stuff done while Lori's interviewing. That last 30 seconds, trying to get that data up on the screen while we're trying to call the next team out to keep that timing right on mark. And, And I remember hearing in the back room, a minute early is just as bad as a minute late in terms of the whole block of time that we had. And to be able to choreograph all that out uh, was was pretty intense. (laughs) And Skippy, what was your impression of the whole traffic copying and experience there? I was in the unique capacity where I was the director. So I was I was critiquing Jake and Bethany. I'm critiquing Lori. I'm going over to Paul. But I just want to speak to Paul's efforts right now, because going into this, we knew that the very first round, the preliminary round, was the most restrictive round time-wise, and we had the most teams going out there. So I'm grinding on Paul. So all kudos back to him going, Paul, there's no excuses. We have to deliver on this. Right, Paul? He's going, oh, yeah, Skip, we'll deliver. I go, (laughs) I want to hear that again because I didn't feel that conviction in your voice. You know, that that was the kind of approach, but it was constructive. It was never negative. It's always, you know, Paul, we're going to pull this off, right? Yeah, absolutely. And then we have challenges during that first round. So I'm sitting there. I'm going, what in the hell just happened? Oh, well, uh, no big deal. We just had a meltdown. None of the none of the tablets are working. So uh, we're using pencils and pieces of paper and in you know scrap paper stuff like that. And I go, oh my god, is that really is that happening right now? Yeah, that's what's happening right now. Okay, and then Paul pulled it off. And then we, we I think we finished two or three minutes over, considering all the complications that we had going in. Nobody on the outside had any idea. Yeah. That was intense. And then I also enjoyed being able to work with uh, uh, with everyone, with the staff, because everyone was absolutely on the same page in that same kind of spirit. Nothing negative, everything positive. I'd go up to Jake and, and Bethany. I'd go, how did it go? Well, they conveyed that they have all this information and it's, you know, they're a bit frustrated because they don't have the time to be able to, to, to um, elaborate on all of the research and the hard work that they did. So I thought about it and I came back and I said, okay, guys. We're going to use what I'm calling the Louvre effect, where in the Louvre in Paris, then they have all of the collections downstairs. And what's presented to the public is a small percentage of that. You guys are going to be doing the Louvre effect. You have all of this information. You have a limited time about what you can make public. So this is where the art comes in. This is where you're going to be effective. 
now conveying selectively what you think is appropriate for this moment. And they pulled it off. They did fantastic. Same thing for Lori. We're, we're, I'm working. I've got um, Nob, the president of WIFDIF, in my ear. I'm um, um, getting feedback from the raw motion guys, from the, the Olympic Channel guys. People are feeding me information. Uh, Volker, the executive director, feeding me information. So now I'm going back to Lori and Bill and saying, okay, we need to tighten this up. We need to change our phrasing a little bit. And Lori already spoke to this, but, you know, okay, let's have – Let's tighten up the questions, and then let's. Uh, it's okay to have a little bit of dead air. Let's bring out the next athlete so they're on the field of play. Boom, we're ready to go. And in by the third round, we had it dialed in. I wanted to ask Emma what she thought from a player's standpoint of how because you're hearing now what was going on in the background, and you knew some degree of that. But maybe from a competitor standpoint, how did you think that worked? Like in terms of your ability to um, do what you were there to do? I would say um, from the athlete's perspective, everything was incredibly smooth. And that is just huge thanks to what everyone has just been describing, all of the super hard work that went in behind the scenes. Because for me, what I had to do, I was told exactly where I need to be and when, where I could practice and when to warm up before the routine. It was very clear. We would have this space to warm up in. We would then move to this space. We'd be ready. We'd be on deck. Um, and then we'd be go out onto the court of play. Um, so it really could not have been smoother. Um, you know, I think this has been mentioned earlier compared to other tournaments. The speed of things was a bit quicker. Um, and so that took us just the smallest adjustment from my perspective of just being ready right away. Okay, I'm going into routine mode. But the whole experience was very smooth. I felt very supported by everyone. Um, and so just huge thanks to everyone who made that possible. Yeah, I wanted to chime in and say also Jakob Coastal. We can't forget him and Ryan both at the at the judging area. Jakob, uh, Emma's comment just made me remember that, you know, I was prompted to do a countdown of when the music would start. That's how scripted this had to be, every single routine. So I would say music will start in five, and then Jakob would do four, three, two, one. He'd press the button, the music would start, and they had to be ready. There was also a timer on the field. There was this lit timer that counted down from three minutes, and it was huge, and it was in the corner. And so we didn't have to do any type of verbal 30 seconds last throw. Um, everybody was so tightly choreographed with their three-minute routines already that they could look over, and they were using that clock, and it was great. And they could see exactly when they were supposed to finish. So the players also had to have their music turned in well before the event started. So we already had all the music queued up and ready to go. And there was a limit to the amount of time you could have before you did your first throw so that we could stay on time. And that's something that's a little bit different. But um, I also wanted to ask Emma in regards to judging. I assume that you were a judge at some point. And so typically the judges have uh, pretty much as long as they need to come up with an answer. But this time you only had a minute and a half. So how did that impact uh, you and the judging table? Yes, I did judge for two of the rounds, although I had the easy job of judging execution, or I guess easy in terms of time that it takes to calculate both of my times judging execution. You know, you're basically you're just you're tabulating as you go using the tablets from Ryan's system. Um, and then as soon as the routine is done, you know, quick check with your judging partner. And then you have your final score. It was 
very straightforward to then take that final score. We calculated with the tablet and then we entered it into uh, the tablet system that hooked up to to the stream uh, to get it up on the screen. So our job was relatively quick and straightforward. Um, of course, we're sitting next to the folks who are judging both difficulty and artistic impression. Um, so there's definitely a little bit more discussion that happens um, in judging those categories after the routine is done. So I think that there was a little bit more time pressure, obviously, to have those discussions quickly and efficiently. Uh, the folks who were judging in those categories made it happen. And um, I think it was really, uh, really great to be able to get those scores right up on the screen. I mean, what an incredible experience as an athlete to, you know, you do your routine, you step off, and then you get to see those scores immediately up there. Like, that's something that I've never gotten to experience before. So that was really cool. Yeah, yeah, super cool. Um, I went and talked to some of the BMXers and talked to them about their judging system and how much time they have to make the call. And their judges have 90 seconds. So I guess they have 15 seconds to turn in their score. Then the uh, head judge reviews it and has another 20 seconds optionally to go back and have a discussion. So if anything is really out of whack, they go back and have a discussion. But otherwise... Uh, the scores have to be in within 15 seconds and they, their absolute max is 90 seconds. But when you're out there watching the BMXers, the scores are up there way before 90 seconds. And so what she was telling me, the judge was, um, the scores are usually in well before they're put up on the screen. And the only reason they don't put them up on the screen right away is because they're doing instant replay. They're talking about what the competitor just did. They're filling time with the show before they bring the scores up on the screen. So it's a very different perspective in judging than we have. Uh, the feeling now, looking at this in with a bit of retrospective, then um, I can see how much of a positive impact this has had on the freestyle community. Um, and then also how this is also going to resonate over time. This has been a paradigm shift, if you will. Um, as we referenced earlier, then there was that consideration about not knowing what it is that we were getting into. And now we can look at this with, with some clarity. I think this is also uh, going to give us an opportunity to have some stimulus for growth focused growth. So instead of being in a reactive position to try to grow our sport, this is now going to give us that impetus and the focus to be able to come up with a, a comprehensive growth plan, uh, focusing on gender equality, uh, gender development, uh, youth development, uh, looking at regional development, going back to Africa, going into some pristine areas like Australia, Oceania, which are just waiting for uh, an opportunity for us to go in there with a clear, focused effort for growth. And I think that this is the starting point. And yeah. we want to thank you guys all for taking the time out of your day to join us and share your thoughts. And also thank you for all of the effort that you put in to make World Urban Games happen, to make it successful, and uh, to make everyone's experience, the staff and the players, and everyone at Geisif watching, uh, have a positive experience. So it, it was wonderful being there. I can say it was wonderful. And it's in part because of all the efforts you guys put in. So thank you. Couldn't have done it without you. I'm super excited about what the future holds with this opportunity. And, and I think you said it perfectly, Skippy. So on that note, Jake, I will talk to you next time. Talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to 
Shooting the Frisbees with Jake and Randy. To contact us or for more info, check us out at frisbeeguru.com. Home to Haynesville, shooting the Frisbees and live streaming freestyle Frisbee.